Well, we just have a couple of chapters left in Hebrews, and I'm so glad you've stuck with this study long enough that we're getting here to the end because this is really, we're getting to a climactic moment in chapter 12 because the first 10 chapters, as we discussed, had a lot to do with who Jesus is and what he did in his death and in his ministry to fulfill the parts of the old law that were were lacking, to abolish, uh, in a sense, to make obsolete the old law and bring us into a new age with a new priest and a new covenant. Chapter 11 discusses all these great heroes of faith and reiterates and clarifies that they were saved and declared righteous by their faith, not simply by their works. And that's important because he's trying to urge an audience that is so completely um, tied in to the culture of righteous works and the meritorious works of the law that they have to break free of that to accept the righteousness by faith and a covenant of grace. So he's listed all these people, all their deeds, and the faith that saves is the faith that obeys. And we begin chapter 12. And again, if you can read the Bible without the chapter divisions and you can read straight through, you get a sense of the flow better. That's most true with Hebrews. If, if, if it's ever true, it's certainly true with Hebrews because he finishes this list of these people and these deeds and that they were made righteous by their faith and their faith is what is what motivated those deeds. We come to chapter 12 and he begins with, therefore, uh, it's such an important word in the book of Hebrews because it's always calling us to look back and see the point that was just made and now the result of it, the, the resulting action from what we've just learned. So we had all these great people who did all these great things because of their faith and by their faith and now, because of that, in acknowledgement of that fact, in light of that truth, what are we going to do about it? Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, okay, all these people he just mentioned, he said, they've died, they've gone on, and their lives are a testimony. Does this mean that literally the, the dead are surrounding us, watching us, you know? I don't know. Maybe they are. Maybe there is. Uh, a, maybe those in heaven can look down and see us and watch us. And um, I don't know if that's literally true. Um, by custom, I think it was accepted that that might be the case that we were being looked down upon by those who had gone on before. But really, it's their testimony. Okay, um, uh, those who had gone on, their lives continue to speak in their actions, the, in the deeds that they performed, and the things that were written about them. And so at the very least, we are surrounded by these beautiful stories of faith that bear witness to the glory of God and the grace of God. So whether they're literally watching us from the next life or whether we are simply aware of their deeds and their lives and their actions, we have something bearing witness to a life of faith and obedience. So because of that, the author says, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set up before us. Okay, so you see what all of your forefathers have done and how they lived by faith and they obeyed by faith. Now, you're a witness to that. You are seeing that, that life, that, that story in front of you. In light of that, you should get rid of everything that holds you back. The sin that leeches onto our body and holds us down, but also the weight of the law, which, which pr did not produce the good works that a, that a law of faith produces. 
So he's saying to set that aside and let's run with endurance, with perseverance. Let's continue because there's a course marked out before us and we've got to complete it. And how do we do that? Verse 2, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. Now, that's this version says founder and perfecter. Uh, traditionally, most translations say the author and perfecter of our faith. Founder, author, pretty much synonymous, um, the one who creates. Jesus is the reason for our faith. He's the reason. He's the foundation of the faith. Without Jesus, there's nothing to put our faith in. We put our faith in the promise of God because it's manifest in Christ. So he is the founder. He is the author. He writes it. But he's also the perfecter of our faith. And we know, as we've said in weeks past, when we see the word perfect in Scripture, do not think of flawless. Think complete. When some, We think of perfect as having no, no error, no flaw. But perfect just meant it's complete. It has order, it has purpose, it is a whole thing, all right? It's not partial, it's not incomplete. So Jesus is both the foundation, the founder, the author, the creator, the reason for our faith, and he completes it. He makes it perfect. How is that so? Well, we put our faith in Jesus Christ because there's a promise coming through Christ. But because he died on the cross and raised again from the dead, he completed the work he perfected the faith because he fulfilled the promise that was given that through the Son of God, salvation would come. Uh, who, for the joy that was set before him, just for the joy, because, because the joy that was set because of what would come as a result, he endured the cross, despising the shame. Uh, that's a weird turn of phrase, despising the shame, because it's two very negative things. Meaning... When we despise something, we think we look negatively on it or we don't like it. It also means to be flippant. Flippant isn't a good word, but to, to disregard something. There was great shame in the cross. It wasn't just a painful way to die. It was a public and humiliating way to die. That's how the Romans designed it. They used it to strike fear into those who they ruled over and to keep everybody in line and to, to shut down rebellion. They would go into cities, newly conquered places, and they would literally just count off every 10th person in the city and they would hang them on a cross along the streets, let them hang there for days and die slowly. We have a word in our English language today which comes from this act. It was to decimate, deca meaning one-tenth, uh, one-tenth of the people were put to death just simply to let everyone know who was boss. And they did that, and that was a shameful and awful, painful, and humiliating way to die. And Jesus said, I don't care that it is shameful. I don't care that it is painful. I don't care that it's humiliating. I despise the shame of the cross. And now he is, the verse concludes, seated at the right hand of the throne of God. And we see him there when we get to uh, things like Revelation, where we see the vision of Stephen in the book of Acts. That's true. He's right there in the throne room of God. Verse 3, Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood, and have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son 
whom he receives. All right, we're going to talk about discipline here, and I want to make sure we set the definition properly. First of all, verse 3 through 5, uh, really, yeah, 3 through the first half of 5, he, he uses Jesus there as the example. Okay, Jesus uh, died, gave his life, willingly went to the cross, didn't care that it was shameful, humiliating, and painful. He did it for you. Now, Jesus resisted this world, fought against this world, opposed this world to the point of shedding his blood. We suffer for the name of Christ. Uh, they, in this time, under Roman occupation, for, for some time after, centuries after, would continue to suffer as well. And he's saying, you should, we need to get rid of all this, the law, the sin, the things that are holding us back because we've got a course set for us and we've got to get to the finish line. Jesus is the reason we're going to keep going. Jesus is the reason because he's the fulfillment of a promise. He is the, the fulcrum on which the, the covenant rests and, and, and balances. And so because of Jesus, we will continue to shed sin to run the race that's marked before us. And we're going to remember when times get hard that no one has nailed us to a cross just yet. If Jesus can hang on the cross and shed his blood for me, then there is no limit to what I can and should do for him. And then he uses this verse here, references this verse to, uh, to discuss uh, uh, with us the idea of discipline. We think of discipline as punishment. That's how we use the word. I have to discipline my children. I'm going to be disciplined by the principal. Um, it is more along the lines of how we use the word to discuss a profession or a skill. Uh, it takes great discipline to learn to play the violin. Um, it takes, uh, you know, you work in the discipline of medicine. This is about honing a skill. This is about improving. This is about growing and developing something. God disciplines those he loves, and we think, oh, that means bad things happen to us, and he teaches us patience by bringing bad things. No, that's not how God works. He doesn't throw bad things your way in order to toughen you up, okay? This isn't a boy named Sue, uh, and if you don't know that song, you, you need to know more Johnny Cash, and then we can be friends, but this is not what that is. We are not being uh, bombarded with difficult things and persecutions and hardships in order to learn to be stronger in the faith. That's not how God works. This discipline means that with Christ come some inherently difficult things. Even just enduring the temptation of the world is tiresome and it makes us weary. But we try to take a great deal of confidence from the fact that Jesus was able to endure the cross and therefore I will endure this world and the fact that we have to endure this world is in and of itself a form of discipline, not as punishment as for the result of something, but a, a way of honing our spirit, a way of sharpening our faith, a way of making us stronger um, for the sake of Christ. And that comes as an inherent part of our faith, and God allows that to happen because it's what's necessary. Because we're his children and because he loves us, He's going to allow us to have to fight a little bit and to grow stronger. Verse 7, it is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. See, if God didn't love us, um, then, there then, then the cross wouldn't mean anything. The cross wouldn't have even happened. 
If he didn't love us, he wouldn't care what happens to us. He does care what happens to us, and he knows that this world is going to be hard, but he wants us not to be at home in this world. He wants us to be at home with him. And so he allows these things to happen. God did not design Christianity and faith to be a cushy life. He designed it to be challenging so we would always remember where our home is. Um, I remember when I was younger, I would get in trouble, uh, you know, and of course, mom and dad had different ways of disciplining, and, and I'm using that in the punishment sense. But I can remember my dad, whether he would ground me or whether he would put me in timeout or whether uh, we had spanking in my household, um, and it was effective for me. I don't know that it worked for my brother as much. Uh, every kid turns out is a little bit different. But that's in our household, that was a part of that equation sometimes. And um, I can remember my dad saying, I, I, maybe I said something to him when I was really young about, you know, I thought you loved me. Why are you punishing me if you love me? And he said, if I didn't love you, I wouldn't care what you did. If I didn't love you, I wouldn't care how you acted. I would let you do whatever you want and grow up and suffer the consequences of your actions and uh, because this world's an ugly place. He said, I'm punishing you or I'm disciplining you because I love you and I want to shape you into someone who will have a, a, a greater blessing in life. You're not going to go, you know, he would, he would punish me for mouthing off to him so that when I got older, I didn't mouth off to someone else and, and you know, get laid out <laughs> by someone who, who might be prone to doing that. So my dad stressed to me that a parent will discipline, and that doesn't just mean punish, but shape and demand a certain level of behavior from a child because they love them and they do not want negative consequences for them later. And so they're going to, in a controlled and loving way, offer those consequences now. That's what parenting is to a large degree. Uh, and it, it's motivated by love when it's done right. Uh, and it comes out of love because we know where we want this kid to end up. And this is what the author is saying. God is treating his sons. For what son is, is there whom if the father whom the, his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Uh, besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the father of spirits and live? For they discipline us for a short time as it seemed best to them, but he disciplines us for our good that we may share in his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness for those who've been trained by it. Discipline is not just the punishment for wrongdoing, remember. It is the uh, standard that we are held to, and sometimes being held to a standard is painful. You know, people go and work out, they exercise, they diet, they do that to be healthy so that they'll live longer, so that they're, they have fewer health problems, so that maybe life has a higher quality to it. That does require discipline. They don't do it to punish themselves. It's not, you know, oh, you're so fat and we're going to do 10 more push-ups. Uh, maybe some people motivate themselves that way. But it's a discipline in the sense that it requires us to adhere to a standard so that we may receive the fullest blessings of this life by being more disciplined. It is painful. It's hard to pass up the food we love. It's hard to do those 10 more push-ups because it's going to help you, you know, burn that fat and get your heart healthy and all those things. It discipline is hard, 
it is not always punishment. We think of it as the result. You, you, you broke a rule. Here's your punishment. That's discipline. No. Discipline is the upholding and adhering to a standard that will make you sharper, better, more capable, and ready for the challenges that lie ahead in life. God disciplines us by allowing us to live in this world that is not friendly to us all the time for the sake of Christ. And that discipline makes us better able and better suited and better uh, in our endurance and perseverance to serve him. And when we suffer those difficult times and when we endure the things that require patience uh, and perseverance, we have to remember this world is not our home. And as Paul says, we should count it as, as joy. We should be joyful because it means that we're getting somewhere. We're on our way somewhere. And uh, it's, it's much like when people talk about runners. There, there are people that are runners. Uh, they love to run. They do marathons. They do races. That's not me. I don't get it, okay? It's just not my form. I, I, I don't mind exercising. But running just doesn't appeal to me. It just bores me to tears. But people that do it love it. And they talk about that runner's high that they get. And it's where you push past the pain and you kind of have this euphoric uh, sense that you're just loving it and you're just going and it feels so good. And they say, if you can get to that point, you'll love to run. I've clearly never gotten to that point um, because no one's ever moved a box of donuts far enough away from me that I'd have to run that far. But yeah, that's not for me, but I understand the concept because I understand this concept uh, and vice versa, that there is an element of joy in the pain of this life because it reminds us, ah, yes, this is temporary. We're not meant to be here forever. And that's okay because the place we are going to be forever is that much better. Uh, verse 12, Therefore, lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees, and make straight paths for your feet, so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. Strive for peace with everyone and for holiness, without which no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one fall, uh, fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, uh, and by it many become defiled, that no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. In other words, this isn't to trash Esau. He's saying... Don't settle for less. Esau was short-sighted, and he took a temporary pleasure in exchange for an eternal blessing. Don't be short-sighted. Don't settle for less. That's what sin is. For you know that afterward, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. I'll stop there for a minute, and let's let this wash over us and just kind of sum summarize what we've just read in those last few verses, this is where we get to the, what do I do about all this? Okay, all this stuff about the high priest and Melchizedek and the law, what are we going to do about it? Well, for the original recipients of this letter, for the original audience hearing this proclaimed, this would have been the part where we get to the call to action. All right, because Jesus is the great high priest and he ushers in a new law and a new covenant, we can look forward to a relationship that is built on faith because of Christ with God, and we can look forward to an obedience that comes from a heart of faithfulness rather than the oppression of a law. 
and know that life is sometimes going to be more difficult as a result. But Jesus made it through the cross for you. You can make it through this life for him. And remember, when you face those tough times, it's for God. And it's because of Jesus. And you can do it. So toughen up. Sit up straight. Put your feet on the floor. And, and stand. And go forward. Keep moving. And let God carry you when he needs to. And don't let division and don't let arguments crop up and destroy this. Just move forward. Move forward and endure. Let faith, let faith in Jesus Christ call you to endurance and never, ever settle for less. Verse 18, and we'll wrap up this chapter. For you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. For they could not endure the order that was given. If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering. And to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteousness made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Uh, this paragraph here is a little bit a little bit dicey, a little bit hard. He's saying you, you haven't you you haven't yet understood and experienced the fulfillment of the promise. He's going to be talking about the nation of God, God's people, um, our tribe, if you will. And he's saying, you haven't experienced all this yet. And he's making these references. By the way, if you watch our, our study of the book of Revelation, some of these things will pop out at you about beasts and mountains and trembling with fear and loud voices and, and angels and all of these things. Um, he's saying, hey, you, you haven't gotten there yet. You haven't gotten where you're going yet. Um, but you're going to see all these things. And he mentions Mount Zion, which is considered generally a reference to Jerusalem. But he, he here says Mount Zion and a heavenly city of Jerusalem. Because Mount Zion is really not the literal Jerusalem. It is the place where God dwells. And so what he's saying is you've come to the place where God dwells and the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. And, and you're going to see these angels. And you're going to see the assembly. And you're going to see all those who wear the name of God. And you're going to see Jesus. And you're going to see the blood. All these things are referenced in Revelation, by the way, as being what heaven looks like. And the author is saying, you're going to get there one day. And it's going to be more powerful than anything you've ever seen. Again, they've seen bits and pieces of this. They've got their city, Jerusalem. They, they've, they've seen the mountain, reference to Moses here. And he's saying all that, again, it's a shadow. It's a representation. Verse 25, See that you do not refuse him who is speaking. For if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. At that time his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised, yet once, more I, uh, yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. This phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of things that are shaken. That is, things that have been made in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. 
And thus, let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. This is not meant to be a threat. This is meant to be a reminder. There's going to come a time where God's going to shake everything up. And all the stuff that we made is going to be broken and fall apart. What remains is what God has made, his people, his church, the salvation that they stand in through Christ. That remains. The rest of it, up in smoke, gone. Cling to what is eternal. Cling to what is forever. Cling to Jesus. We got one more chapter left in Hebrews, so stay tuned. We want you to catch that. Thank you so much. We'll see you next time.